Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Thank you. Good evening, Shea Stadium. Is this cool or what? In 2008, Billy Joel rounded home in his own Subway series. Baseball fans will remember that phrase as the nickname for the 2000 World Series between the Mets and the Yankees. Just as that was a once-in-a-century matchup, Billy Joel is the only person to have played both Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium. Both shows were commemorated with concert movies, and today, we're offering up our viewing companion to the Live at Shea Stadium CD and DVD set. And just to clarify, we're diving into the audio and concert footage. The last play at Shea documentary, with plenty of behind-the-scenes footage, will be the subject of another episode. This time around, we're talking about the two-hour-plus tour de force that was the last concert ever at Shea Stadium. Well, technically, not the last concert ever. While the shows ultimately went off smoothly, there were some last-minute changes, including Billy adding a second show to take place two nights after the scheduled final concert, and some questions as to whether one of the special guests would make it at all. The concert footage draws from both shows, and is arguably the most intimate, officially released live video of Billy's. No small feat when you're filming a crowd of nearly 60,000 people. Here, you can see the sweat on Billy's face, band members' expressions, and even a few behind-the-curtain moments that make it all the more up-close and personal. If you were lucky, you got to re-watch some of this show on Facebook with a few thousand of your friends back in April. That's when Billy's page attempted to livestream it, only to have the feed crash. Fortunately, it's readily available on DVD and some streaming sites. So if it's been a while, follow along with our viewing guide and get an even more behind-the-scenes glimpse of Billy, his band, a historic baseball stadium, and one, well, two of a kind nights. Rewatching this, one of the things that really, really struck me was, in fact, how intimate this was, especially for a venue this big. First of all, arena shows are huge, but at some point, any good band, Billy included, of course, is going to make it feel cozy. Stadium shows are just always, to me, a beast unto themselves. Like, at no point do you not feel like you're in some sort of huge mass cultural moment. It's just so many people. It's just everywhere you look. But even with all that, this is truly a very intimate show. They didn't shy away from you seeing how sweaty Billy was, um, him talking to his text or text talking to people. You know, you see the piano go through the floor. You see the piano turning on the turntable. There's even a moment here or there where Billy looks like he's unsure exactly where he's going to stand. They could have cut around that very, very easily. And director John Small consciously chose not to. I think a lot of concert films really try to hide that part of the experience and really make it look seamless and completely clean and everything like that. I personally liked being able to see a little bit of that that you don't typically see in a concert film. I know John Small has been working with Billy since the hassles. They go back a long ways, so he knows him really well, knows what he likes, knows what he doesn't like, and there's a big trust between the two of them, so I think John was able to really get creative here. And for my eyes, take a big stadium show and make it a really small feeling. The camera work is so good. The edits are nice and smooth and you really get a nice feel for this show. We did uh, live from Long Island and that's a that's a great show, but I would, you know, kind of put it to a good point at the limitations probably of what they could actually pull off. 
they got pretty close at times, but they weren't that up close and personal. And then uh, live from Yankee Stadium is great, but it, it, it's highly stylized. You know, there's a lot of sort of flash moments, and, and it, it kind of looks like a music video. People mug for the camera here and there. Um, you know, in this case, the cameras are out of the way, but really on top of everything. The Yankee Stadium show in particular, it's very of its time as far as the camera work and the editing goes. <laughs> very, very quick edits, cameras tilting yeah. and moving around freeform. And it's it's very, you know, some would say nauseating because of how quick the edits and how quick it all moves. But everything with this one is is so smooth and is probably the best captured concert that i've seen out of billy uh yeah you know it's it's such an yeah yankee stadium was such an mtv one and uh you know there's that quote from billy when they introduced last play at chase like i like this one it didn't make me want to puke <laughs> right and so there's a there, there's also this great um kind of through line that's going on behind the scenes throughout the entire concert and that is whether or not Paul McCartney, who comes out at the end, is actually going to make it. Originally, there was some talk about Paul McCartney closing out Shea Stadium because the Beatles played there back in 65. But Paul's feeling on it was, we're never going to top that show, so I'm not even going to try. Which cleared the way for Billy to do it. And of course, Billy wanted Paul to make it. But Paul was um, overseas at the time. So throughout the show... They're wondering if Paul's going to make it at all. And they're like, they're kind of stretching for time a little and they're doing this and that. And I don't think it's on the film, but apparently one of the texts comes out, hands Billy a towel and says, Paul's in New York airspace. Like he's almost here. And they whisk him through customs as fast as they can. They get him off the plane. They had a connection that got the plane to land like significantly early so they could get him off they flew him through customs and everything police escort right to the stadium i mean it was it was pretty wild and it was yeah. down to the wire yeah it really was i think he pretty much just got there almost when he goes on you can see billy kind of pointing and talking to people on the stage and clearly giving direction as to what's going to happen uh you even see when and i guess i'll we'll go into it a little you see billy unsure of what to do during the last song because it was just such an impromptu moment yeah because they, they really didn't completely plan for because they didn't know what exactly what was going to go down. Right. You know, that also makes it really special. You know, most concerts are pretty well scripted, especially, you know, for the audio and the lighting cues and all the different stage moves and things like that. Uh, so to have a, an, you know, an audible like this and stuff to where you don't even know exactly how it's going to go down, there's a bit of an excitement in that. And that's, you know, that's pretty rock and roll. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, Paul was not the only one to go off script for this show, but we'll get to that. Uh, in a little while. <laughs> Absolutely, for sure. And I guess we should mention, too, that originally it was going to be just one show on July 16th of 2008 because it sold out so quickly and because all the scalpers and secondary ticket sites jacked up the prices to, in some cases, literally tens of thousands of dollars. Tickets for the first night were all under $100. I think they were like up to 95 something crazy like that. Billy, you know, then scheduled a second show two days later which, you know, drew some booze at the first show and he was like, sorry for all you guys, I thought you bought a ticket to the last concert at Shea Stadium. One of the unfortunate realities of the modern ticket buying world, uh, scalpers. And yeah. once Billy and his camp got wind of it, they, you know, they said, you know, so many of our people got screwed yeah. out of tickets. We need to do something so they can have a shot. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the only logical answer to it was a second night somebody's got to make like a an anthology of what's been on billy's piano over the years you know if you look originally uh you know it's an ashtray and a drink later on yeah. there's there's stories of there's two cups and one's got water and one has vodka in it 
But yeah, this time it's a coffee cup. You know, it's a coffee cup and a couple laminated pages. I'm guessing the set lists, things like that. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I thought that was that's exactly what I was thinking too. I was I was paying attention to his piano, and I'm like, okay, what's going on 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 the piano this time? Yeah, I did notice the throat spray as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. The throat spray was there. Yeah. You, know, you got fly swatter. You know, that's been a regular occurrence on the outdoor shows. And um, yeah, it was years and years ago. I mean, because I was still using a radio alarm clock, so we're talking potentially in the 90s, probably early 2000s. I just happened to wake up to MMR, like the, you know, the rock station in Philly, and the two DJs were talking about Billy playing, and they were saying, yeah, he always had two cups. One was water, one was vodka. And there was one show in Philly. He got so drunk, he tried to get away without doing Piano Man. Like, he, he left the stage. He's like, I can't go back out there. I can't do it. They're like, Billy, you got to go do Piano Man. He's like... <sighs> Okay, <laughs> heads back out there. Oh, that's funny. So we start off with Angry Young Man, and the one thing I notice is that they definitely, they sped up about, I think in the second verse, there's like a, there's an audible spot where they just tick it up a couple notches there. You know, part of it was the fact that it was Shay. I'm sure the nerves were a little different. You know, yeah. that's kind of my conjecture on that. That's a good observation. I was also looking at the actual set list from the show. Uh-huh. It's actually a bit out of order from how it was played. Oh, really? And again, you know, this is drawn from both nights. But the one thing that I noticed, Angry Young Man was actually the second song of the night. Really? Both nights. Wow. It actually opened with Miami 2017, both nights. But on the concert film, it's buried pretty deep. Yeah, and the, the intro isn't on there either. It starts right on the on the uh, verse, on the singing. Yeah, and he did that for a while. I don't know if this is an instance where it was just cut off for time. There was a period where they just completely lopped off that entire intro and went right into the verse. You know what's weird about that is because he introduces the orchestra, the string players, on Billy the Kid. But they must have been out for the first song then because the, the strings are on that one. Uh, yeah, I wonder if he, he just didn't introduce them until the second right, time right. they were up. Wow, there's a there's a lot of songs that didn't make it actually. Night one was 37 songs. I'm gonna have to rewatch the uh, the last play Che documentary now and see what else is uh, lurking in there that didn't quite make it. Oh yeah, I think there is some some additional footage. Yeah, I mean John Mellencamp's not in it. Roger Daltrey's not in it. Don Henley's not in it. Second one here is My Life, and I like it in the number two slot. I think he's done that quite a bit. Uh, like Live from Long Island, that's the number two. It just seems to be a, a nice second song. I can't put my finger on what I like about it being second, but it sits well there. Yeah, it's a groover. I mean, you know, Angry Young Men and even Miami 2017 is going to pick you up and smack you around a little, but uh, my life just kind of... It takes it down a notch, but not too far down. It gives you some place to go again, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. A, yeah, that's a fair point. What I noticed about My Life is this is the first time you really have the two background vocalists pretty prominent yeah. on stage. On this show, you have Kevin Osborne and Peter Hewlett singing mm -hmm. background vocals. Now, you may recognize Peter Hewlett because he has toured with Billy in the past. Uh-huh. So Peter Hewlett was one of the background vocalists for the Innocent Man Tour in 84 mm -hmm. and also did the bridge tour and the Russian tour in 86, 87. So actually, if you go back and listen to the live record from Russia at the end of Uptown Girl, Billy says, I'd like to introduce you to the man who sang all the high notes on that song, Peter <laughs> Hewlett. Yeah, before Crystal, that was his job, huh? <laughs> yep. So 87. So you're looking at almost 20 years later, he's back doing the show with Billy. And I'll tell you what, so back to the this concert, though, man, I love this version of my life. There are times when I can take or leave my life, depending on my mood. Um, Same. I like the, a lot of his little vocal changes there. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, just when you think that maybe 
He's he's changing up a melody um, just because maybe he can't hit a note. He cracks out a couple good high notes. Like it's almost like as as if he's like, no, I can I can still do it. I'm just choosing to play with it a little. <laughs> when to do it? Yeah. So he's not blowing yeah. his. I noticed that too. There's a couple times where he kind of slips into his old vocal register, and right. it's like there's glimpses of like, oh yeah, okay, he can still do it if he wants to, but he just doesn't want to kill his voice. <laughs> you know, a little later on, you hear more of his um, his voice as it sounds now, and you know this. Yeah. seems to straddle the end of his old voice in, in some ways maybe not a 70s voice but certainly like his 90s into early 2000s voice sort of into the consistently lower registers that he sings in now one thing to note too about this one on the cd my life actually has an intro uh yankee doodle dandy yeah, which that, is not on the dvd that's right because I, I did see that notated and they didn't do it so uh, yeah, and then at the end of this one, um, I love his. Oh oh! Before we get to that, um, as far as I'm concerned, after Billy, of course, star for the night here is Tommy Burns. I freaking loved him in this. Like halfway through this DVD, I'm just like, okay, let's. I want to see what Tommy's up to. He just he looks so comfortable. He looks so happy. His guitar fills were great because this is the first one he stepped out on a little, at least on the on the DVD. Um, you know, he's got some great little guitar fills um, throughout my life, just right in the pocket, right where they needed to be. Yeah. And uh, he had an amazing, very comfortable, very enjoyable presence on this one. You know, one thing that I noticed on this, I think probably starting in 2006, is mm-hmm. uh, Billy had two guitar players for a couple years, uh, and which was the first time really since the Stormfront tour, which was David Brown and Tommy Burns. David Brown stayed along for that tour. But Dennis Delgado, I, I don't know 100% if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but Dennis is a great guitar player. I believe he was involved in Moving Out, and uh-huh. he is actually currently playing in the Lords of 52nd Street as well. Uh-huh. And then and also a great like uh, kind of Americana country rock kind of thing called Shotgun Wedding. That's another great band he's got. Chuck Burgey might be involved with that one. So there's so many different layers of people playing yeah. with different guys. But uh, Dennis was the second guitar player on this show, playing a lot of rhythm guitar stuff. So he's kind of off in the shadows next to Dave Rosenthal, so you don't really see him. But I think that allowed Tommy to shine a little more on the guitar because Dennis was kind of holding down the rhythm guitar foundation throughout. Yeah, uh, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't realize Tommy Burns was in the Stray Cats too. Yeah, he did play with. Was it the Stray Cats or Brian Setzer? Yeah, but yeah, I know he was involved with yeah. them to some degree. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he, he looked a little rockabilly in this one, just slightly. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, easy going uh, jeans and a black t-shirt. You know, can't go wrong. So at the end of this one, he asks who's here as a Mets fan, who here is a Yankees fan, who even gives a shit. <laughs> um, back in our first episode, you know, one of the things I said was that Billy always sounds like, you know, my dad and his buddies. Man, he sounded just like my dad's friend Nat when he said that. It was like I closed my eyes and just saw him. <laughs> just, just as delivery oh, that was like right there. And then, uh, and then he makes a note of his personal tie. You know, the Beatles played there in 1964. And uh, that's when Billy Joel first started playing uh, with the Echoes. Yeah, because he doesn't say the name of the band. He just says, when I got with my first band. How many Mets fans are here? (laughs) How many Yankees fans are here? Who doesn't give a either way? You know, uh, this stadium opened up to play baseball 
in the year 1964. And that was the first year I joined up with a band and started playing rock and roll in a band, 1964. And they're gonna be tearing this house down, but I wanna thank you for letting me do the job and still keep doing it. It's the best job in the world. Yeah, so after my life comes Summer Highland Falls. And the one thing that I noticed right off the bat uh-huh. is, well, you know, he does what he's been doing a lot the last 10, 15 years. This song's from 1976 from an album called Turnstiles. Mm-hmm. You know, he sets up so many songs like that now. Yeah. But after that, he just says the simple line, this is called Summer Highland Falls. Right. And the way he said it sounded so much like the songs of the Attic version, <laughs> except for the little laugh in between it. The way he said it, the inflection in his voice really took me back to songs in the attic. So that, that kind of surprised me for a minute. It's called Summer Highland Falls. It's such an iconic part of that song to me now is just, you know, coming off Miami 2017 and that real calm. You know, this is called Summer Highland Falls. It's a good version of it. You know, um, third song in, people are kind of settling in now. And, you know, Summer Highland Falls is pretty well known. But um, he kind of pulls back a little on, uh, on the, easy, the easy hits there, I would say. Summer Highland Falls is the first time you see the piano on the turntable rotating. Um, rotating, yeah. Yeah, that was your first. Because I think before that, you know, if, you, if you're paying attention, you notice that he's facing one way and then facing the other. During Summer Highland Falls, you see it, or right before you see it turn around. Yeah, yeah, that is the first time you actually do see it moving. I think this might have been around the first era where that started to happen. I don't remember how early he started having the piano that rotated. It gave him a chance to easily play to different sides of the venue, which which was nice. Especially um, now that he doesn't do the auxiliary keyboards and everything's from the digital grand piano now. And you know, and he kind of continues that that little non-hit vein. He goes right into Everybody Loves You Now and you don't think he was going to do that at, at a show like this. You know, that's a that's a pretty deep cut. Um, one thing I have to say, it was a little slower, but yes. sounded really good. Hey, he sounded a little Dylan-ish on the break. Kind of yes, he did. A little affectation there. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that as well. That's a... They really was doing something weird that gave me a Dylan vibe. I like the background vocals on this. They were really, really solid all throughout. Nice harmonies. Mm -hmm. The groove was really solid as well, albeit slower, like you mentioned. Definitely had a Cold Spring Harbor vibe to the drum feel, the later version. Nice performance. Looking at this, you know, now I'm, I'm uh, at the time, I, I thought we were following the, uh, the actual set list, so we skipped the entertainer. But then he goes into Zanzibar. And Zanzibar was one that up until around that time, I, I don't think Zanzibar had been played live for quite a long time. So right. it was a real treat when that resurfaced. It was in the set, every set for quite a while at that point. Mm-hmm. So I think it got kind of got a little fatiguing, but this performance was just really good. You know, the one thing I noticed, Dave Rosenthal, and it goes back to you know our conversation about how much care he took to really try and match the sounds on the albums. Yeah, David's keyboard sounds throughout this song are really on point. And I also loved uh, Carl Fisher's solo. You really mm-hmm. can't do this song without a horn player. You can, oh, but right. it's the pinnacle of the song. So oh, yeah. one thing I loved was how well Carl moved between sticking with the original and doing a little something of his own. Mm-hmm. So you, you heard a lot of note for note from the album but then he gave it his own personality with a couple runs and a couple lines in it as well. Yeah. And it was just a nice blend of the two. 
And of course, you know, he goes a little further at the end. Um, Freddie Hubbard fades out on the on the record, so he gets a little more time to do it up. Yeah, it really showcases him nicely here. Vocally, I thought Billy, you know, when he goes into the whoa, he's really going for it there. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. A couple lyric changes in this one. Uh, one yes. more risque than the other. So yeah, it was uh, Rosie Knows He's Such a Credit to the Game. It's Rosie Knows He'll Never Make the Hall of Fame. And then yeah. uh, later on, it's she's going to pull her panties down for me and Crystal like gives him a look. Yeah, she shoots him <laughs> a look. That's funny. And that's what I like being able to see is the, like, the interplay between the band members on stage. You know, because you know there's jokes and inside stuff going on all night long. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, they're giving you a show, but that that's how they keep themselves entertained and engaged is just to have fun with each other. Right. To see, like, that kind of thing go back and forth is, was funny. Yeah, and they framed it really well, too. They got John Small got a nice, nice, good cropped-in shot there. So, like, both both heads were, like, perfectly framed up. <laughs> yeah, I thought so as well. I also love the, uh, the walking bass line on this. A couple times, Andy Sishion really... Um, let a let a note ring out for an extra beat or two than than it would on the record because the record was really cooking. Really nice effect, and uh, one of the times he does it, it's a nice close up on the bass strings, and you can watch his hands just like really slide through that. That was a that was a nice treat. Andy really gives Doug's parts a lot of justice. Just a super tasty player, and you almost forget like the bass runs and things like that going on on Zanzibar. I mean, the rhythm tracks are all the Lords guys. It's Liberty and Doug and all them playing yeah. on it. It's not jazz guys, right? And it sounded so good. And the guys here in 2008 really, really did a nice job with it. Billy will joke sometimes about how, you know, if he plays a deep cut, people know to go to the bathroom. You know, they actually leave in <laughs> at one point during this song. You see how many people up front start leaving their seats and go do their thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. You noticed that too. That was, yeah, yeah. that was funny because there, there was that wide shot. There were some people definitely not engaged in that song, like getting up to get a beer or pee or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that for sure. <laughs> yeah. I hope a few of them got embarrassed. They were like, oh man, oh, what a dope I look like. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's something that you definitely didn't see on any of the other ones, you know, and you know they have that footage. You know it's out there. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. You know what else is funny about this one? <laughs> because it's 2008. How many people had digital cameras and not phones? Yes. <laughs> yes. This was just on the cusp of like the iphone and the android and all like yeah. the smartphone stuff was almost there but there was a lot of point and shoot digital cameras going on out there i noticed next up we got new york state of mind you know again mm -hmm. i love this version this isn't always one of my favorites um getting into a little more now but yeah. it, it was this was a nice punchy version even before the guest came out you know yeah i thought so too and i kind of feel the same the same way i could kind of give or take it over all the you know over the last 20 or so years right there was a great version in 87 it was like a sound check from the russian tour yeah. this was a nice solid performance and this was also the first guest of the night in the way of tony bennett uh before we get to that i wanted to mention and, and you can't not feel like this but there's times when it seems just slightly canned you know you know they know their their motions or their steps or their beats or what they're going to do and of course they do man there's you know they're stadium ready band you know there was times when they date man especially billy just cracks through and does whatever the hell he wants and the beginning of this one that's a great example that you know that opening piano bit like there's some tension in there like he, you feel like he almost doesn't make the run and you know there's just those moments he gets up top you're like how is he gonna make is he gonna make it back down the keys and it just just sets up so much excitement for this song and i think that's a big part of why i enjoy this one so much tony bennett comes out i got freaking chills man i love tony bennett tony's great yeah. something about the, his voice is just so soothing and you know there's something about his voice that just takes you back to another time 
time. Because I think it's because it's not as velvety as like Frank Sinatra was. Frank Sinatra was like brandy. He sounds analog. The only way I can describe it. He sounds like an He's acoustic a guitar on a record. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a better way of putting it. Yeah. It's got a warmth to him. You know, it's the fact that he's a jazz singer versus, you know, oh, what would you, I guess Frank Sinatra was technically a pop singer. Sure. Tim Pan Alley kind of got Tony a Bennett's more, are an LP and, you know, Sinatra and some others are digital files. Oh, man, I, I better get grounded before my metaphors get like out of control tonight, you know. That place got supercharged. The whole thing, the overall whole thing just went up another couple notches. His entrance was so perfectly timed. There's that one moment where you think maybe Tony's not going to get to his mark in time, but like even you just know he is. Yeah, he knew exactly how long he needed to get to that mark. Like, I saw the same thing, too. I'm like, he's going to be a little late getting out there. And then, and then suddenly it was like, bam, verse. And he was right, right in it. <laughs> I love how much they fed off each other. I'm going to go oh, ahead yeah. and say that wasn't a put on. He doesn't have these guests a ton. At least at this point, he didn't. Right. And to be able to bring some of his heroes and some contemporaries and even some of the younger generation out, you could tell how much he and the guys in the band fed off of it. You know, I wonder if the crowd knew that that there was going to be all these guests coming. I, I have a feeling like they didn't because of the reaction every time one of them hit the stage. Yeah, I think uh, I think they knew they were going to be guests, but you know, you still don't know who it's going to be. It could be anybody. I th- yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I, I think the McCartney rumor was super strong throughout, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of these others they weren't sure who it was going to be. The uh, strings are a nice touch on this one too. Well, what you got to watch for at the end of this one is when, <laughs> when Tony jumps the gun and he, he comes in early on New York State, and then he goes New York. <laughs> and he just keeps talking just to keep it going in time. That's right. Yeah. He kind of rushed into it a little bit and then <laughs> just vamped to cover it. If you watch for it, you see Billy just like with wide eyes, like with his hands all the way up, like Bella Lugosi doing Dracula, like trying to get everybody in on that downbeat because now they don't know where it's going to be. So we got a classic coming up here. Allentown yeah. is next. Silly as this may sound, but I miss the, when Mark used to play the pipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No clanging this time. <laughs> right. I know it was a cheesy visual, but it was still fun. It gave it just a fun, unique thing to this song. I know he only did it through the Stormfront tour, but it made me think mm-hmm. of that. I was like, you know, they should bust out a pipe again and just <laughs> just do that for a bit. We talked a good deal about it for the Life from Long Island one. Okay, here's another moment I liked in this one. Crystal's cymbal roll. Pulling off a good cymbal roll, it, it, there's a definite art to that. It, I feel like it would be patronizing to be like, oh, Crystal does a good cymbal roll, because of course she does. But it was just a moment where you really saw her just draw out the right dynamic. I, as a drummer, I really enjoyed that. When you can play the dynamics just right and have that much control over yeah. the cymbal, it can really enhance a moment like that, and mm-hmm. this certainly did. Yeah, you really push the song. You give the song a nice push when you get it just right. For sure. And, you know, keep in mind that prior to Stormfront, there wasn't a whole lot of auxiliary percussion going on uh-huh. on the, the albums as well. And Crystal never overplays. She picks great moments throughout the back catalog to really mm-hmm. enhance the songs that just give it a nice flavor. Uh, Tommy Burns has a nice moment on this. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that he adds a little, a couple of his own licks to that really iconic guitar part. I still feel like the tone was even pretty close to David Brown, but he still added his own element to it. The next one we've got is the Ballad of Billy the Kid. And if you ever wondered uh, what the exact uh, genre of this is, if you look on the sheet music that you can see, it is quasi-Western movie soundtrack. That is the direction on the page. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. I've never seen that. That's hilarious. Because sometimes you see funny markings, you're like rollicking, you know, or, or like, you know, fast paced, energetic. It says something on the yeah. top to tell people quasi Western movie soundtrack. 
I want to know who wrote that. I want to know if that was Billy just taking the piss and being like, you you bring up a good point. David Rosenthal is actually the one who wrote all the charts. Oh, really? Okay. And so he did all the uh, the string and horn arrangements uh, for this show. So all of that is is his, and he really has a good ear for the recording. So much so that when yeah. the intro played by the live string section. First, I literally thought it was a cleaned up tape from Piano Man because it sounded so no perfect from the original studio version. Uh, and you know what's funny about this? So you, you got Crystal on stage, you got a whole orchestra on stage, and he's still doing the clip clops with his mouth. Yep. All right. One thing I didn't like about this version, they didn't do the stops like yes. on the songs in the attic version. I, I take umbrage. Umbrage has been taken. I'm noting yep. it in the file. I, I second your umbrage. I'm, I'm with you there. I actually wrote that down as well. Uh-huh. Crystal did a nice job with the harmonica solo. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. She would have been the one who replaced Russell Jabbers doing it. I can't imagine it's easy to play something so clean in a big rock stadium setting. He's hitting, and again, hitting like those back earlier notes. on Angry Young Man, same thing. Her, I, I, I never really noticed as much like her performances playing harmonica, but just I was really impressed with both of those. Uh, yeah, I mean Billy, Billy the Kid's a well-known song, but again, you know, not a huge hit. And uh, uh, you know, the, the fact that you, you, you're getting this one in with the with the with the orchestra is really cool. So from there we go to Always a Woman, which is yeah, that's it's a hit, that's a staple. Um, yep. Am I the only one that thinks it's weird that somebody proposed during this one? It's not a happy song. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's about like, hey, everyone in the industry thinks my wife is a bee or whatever, <laughs> you know, but I think she's amazing. To me, not a song to propose to. <laughs> yeah, right. That's like uh, Sting always being like, I found out every breath you take was their wedding song. I was like, Ooh, how's that going? She can go where she wants She's ahead of her Good night, Saigon. I'm going to take a crack at this, and we may cut it. We'll see what happens. Um, I like this version. Yep. I really thought a lot about having the cops in the background. Here's yeah. the thing. It, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. I mean, it's an obvious move, especially after yeah. 9-11. My first thought was, what a difference between having a bunch of young New York City policemen in 2008, uh, and in dress uniform, from what I could tell, uh, yes. versus having Vietnam vets in, in street clothes and maybe some fatigues, but... Obviously not in, like, dress, you know. Yeah. You know, my father was a cop, so, you know, I, I, sure. I know plenty of cops. I, plenty of, and I was just like, I, I, I kind of don't know about this. And then it, and then I, I thought about um, 9-11. I was like, all right, now this makes more sense, you know. Yeah. Um, to, to have the cops and not, and not the soldiers. But it was, um, I don't know, man. There was something about that that really, really made me stop and think. It was just a, it was a moment that was a little deeper than just yeah. dragging people in uniform on stage for the song about people in uniform. Yeah, I feel like it made a lot more, you know, like in, when he would do it in the 80s and seeing the vets then on stage, like arms around each other, huddled around, it kind of took you to that place. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone for the cop thing if it wasn't for that. I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have bought that in any other city. If he came to Philly and he did that with a bunch of Philly cops, like no disrespect to the cops at all. 
But I'd be like, there's, there's a disconnect. It doesn't work. Yeah, New uh, York is the only place you can pull that off. And what, what was also interesting about the New York State of Mind, like I was saying, like with a with a really um, show you a little behind the scenes things. I like that when Tony Bennett's coming off, you see the stage crew with the flashlight pointing to, towards the platform, like where he's gonna, you know, where where he's gonna Guiding step and go stage. off stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, obviously happens all the time. Doesn't have any more significance, but the fact that in this particular concert video, you get to see all those little moments that, that go on. That if you're a keen observer in the front row, maybe you're going to see that happen. But you, right. they almost never draw back that curtain in a professional video. I'm not great at telling from here if it's original or, but this felt close to the original key. Yeah, there were moments where, his, you know, the voice was his voice was pretty close to the to the record. I thought. I thought um, so too. This was one of the most shining examples of that through the verses where his voice was like, it, it felt eerily similar to the nylon curtain, which was, which I loved. Yeah. Cause he, he sounded real kind of thin and vulnerable. You got, you, you felt like it was a guy out in the jungle by himself singing. And then I just want to point out too, with the cops who is, it's just an, another interesting little behind the scenes moment, because again, they have a million camera angles to choose from 99% of the time you see everybody standing perfectly still, but there's, there's one shot from the back where you kind of see one of the guys just moving around a little. And I, I just appreciate it that they, you know, they, nobody's going to stand perfectly still that long, you know, and they just right. ch chose to make them human and not just statues. It's just a little touch that, that makes a difference. And I think that's probably part of why I like, like the old videos, like the Life in Long Island era, where it's the, you know, the vets huddled around, moving around, singing. It, yeah. just, it has a more human feel than, like you said, the officers in their dress uniforms standing right. at attention. I totally get why he did it and everything. Like like you said, that makes perfect sense. But that old thing made, felt a little more true to the original spirit of the song, I should say. So after this, we've got Miami 2017, which actually opened the show. All right. I have umbrage with this one, too. Go for Nobody, it. My note says 5625, drum fill, WTF. You caught that, too? Thank you. <laughs> I, no offense. Chuck. I, Chuck's a great drummer, and I, yeah. I get why he wants to bring his own flavor with it but certain songs just don't call for straying really far um and this one i think all around strays super far from the song uh, that drum fill got me and i even just said overall that it just felt kind of clunky here's the thing and maybe we're, i think we're talking about the same one they clearly chose another take he's playing he's playing the groove and you hear the drum fill and it's a close-up on his hands <laughs> i do like when chuck uh, when chuck puts a lot of the double bass in he does that very tastefully and that was certainly nothing that was on uh, any of the studio albums but for a little push sure. at the end of the song like i enjoyed right but man i had that and again man that's a weird decision to make on one hand i understand if somebody was like i like the version where he plays that fill but to choose a close-up on the drummer when it's clearly not what he's playing, like that almost seems like a nod to the audience, like just to remind people that it's it's too, it's compiled from two nights. There Again, was a line in there that was uh, for this night as well. Uh, he, he says, they said the Queens could stay, they blew the Bronx away. Yeah. They said the Mets could play for one right. more game at Shea. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is during baseball season, so that's why the, the diamond is still up, because they had to come back and play. Tommy Burns has some great guitar fills on this one. A lot of great moments. This is when I was where it was really like, ooh, okay, this is great. I can't wait to see Tommy do something again. A little different with the strings. Jury's out. Definitely yeah. different. I don't know that it was needed on this song. Yeah. I don't know that I hated it, but yeah, I'm the same way. I, I don't know what I think of it yet. You know, I should be okay with it. I'm going to tell you why. It's a different version. I have my other versions. Like, I don't have sure. to throw away the other ones, you know? <laughs> Someday I'm yeah, going to want the, the, the versions you know and love are, are well documented and will always yeah. be there. Also, this is the first one I noticed. Uh, Mark Rivera has a uh, 
a Beatles pin on his jacket. So coming out of this, we've got Shameless, which is our next guest of the night, and that would be Garth Brooks. Yeah, Garth Brooks uh, made a hit out of this song. And so, yeah, so know, I get why you know he's there, because I mean, he had the bigger hit with it, so it made sense yeah. to have him come up and do it. So you could tell he really was having fun, and he just loved being a part of it. Yeah. I thought that yeah. was cool. Yeah. I mean, the guy's a great entertainer. I can't take that away from him. Just, uh, yeah, could never, could never do it. Um, so here's what I thought was, here's what's funny about this is, you know, in Billy's head, this was a Jimi Hendrix song, which makes it more enjoyable when you, uh, when you, when you look for those moments in it, when he's kind of aping a little bit of Hendrix, you know? Yes. And so Tommy Burns, who's my hero of the night, he's, he's playing a Strat on this one. He's getting those great licks and they cut to him and he's got the white Strat. I'm like, yeah, that's it. I know. Like that guy on fire. I know he played, he was started with the band on the Stormfront album. Uh-huh. I know it was him and David Brown, and I thought it was David who played the original solo. I'm not totally mm-hmm. sure, but man, Tommy nails the spirit of that guitar solo. And just yeah. the tone is so good, and just the note choices are just fantastic. I yeah. was really, really impressed with his work there. And mm-hmm. Dennis, the auxiliary you know, rhythm guitar player, he was able to play some of those great rhythm parts because this you know storefront album really has a lot of guitar work going on yeah and so the two guitars really played well against each other yeah for sure crystal kills it on this one there's some great the vocals uh, uh, especially yeah. near the end uh she's just so yeah, good this, this one is like this is like <laughs> one of her highlights every time they play it yeah and one thing worth noting too is that andy session became a u.s citizen that week yeah yeah they mentioned that on the on the movie it was like before or after the song. Yeah, they announced that Andy became a U.S. citizen, so that was yeah. pretty neat. Yeah, that was fun. I'm going to bring up uh, John Mayer on guitar. And we get This Is The Time. And, uh, yep. you know, it was the first time I heard this and, and they're doing Shameless. And I'm like, man, it would be cool for this. John Mayer. And then the next song, they bring out John Mayer. <laughs> and I like Perfect John Mayer. Perfect choice. Yeah, um, I don't have any John Mayer records, but I don't turn them off when I hear them. You know, I could yeah. probably buy a record or two if I really felt like it. Um, mm-hmm. I f- uh, but wow, what, what a what a perfect song to bring him out on because his guitar tone fits. This is the time, like a perfect, like a glove man. Yeah, I get why they haven't played this live really over the last thirty-five years or whatever, mm-hmm. because this song is really so centered around David Brown's guitar work. Yeah. It's just so signature to the song and right. no offense to Tommy or anyone who's played guitar in the band, but it's so unique to that kind of player. And I've never seen, I mean, John Mayer is not playing the, the same notes by any stretch, but I've never seen anyone come close to having the feel for yeah. this song that John yeah. did. It's like, dude, watching John Mayer on this song is like watching Scorsese direct Leonardo DiCaprio. Like uh, you just, you're just bringing out something special that not everybody gets out of here. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. It's funny. I have, I actually have a John Mayer story that's related to Billy. Oh yeah. Back when I was working with Liberty, uh, back you know 2000 2001, mm-hmm. um, I was also doing a little bit of work with John Mayer. Oh okay. And I was uh, an aware rep, which was a street team member for. Um, Aware Records, which um, John started out on Aware Records and Columbia Records and then ultimately moved on to just Columbia. Mm-hmm. But the first time I met John, I was selling merch for him at a small club in Orlando, maybe two, three hundred people. It was like yeah. one of those five dollar cover at the door kind of shows. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it was that was the first time we had met. and We got to know each other and hung out a bit uh, when he was in town there. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and we reconnected, you know, a year or so later when I was still working for now Columbia. And, yeah. you know, we got to talking and when Liberty and I became friends, I would share with him some of the music I was into. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, CDs I gave him was this young guy, John Mayer. It was <laughs> like his EP that was out before he even had the record deal. Oh, and wow. Liberty really dug the stuff. It's like, wow, man, this guy's really great. Yeah. And so I tell John, I said, hey, I um, I actually gave your, your album to uh, Billy Joel's drummer, Liberty DeVito. And John, he was like 23 at the time. You know, he was floored. He, just the fact that he's like somebody in Billy Joel's band digs my stuff. He's like, that yeah. is so cool, man. That's cool. And so fast forward, you know, gosh, 15 whatever years later to see John now on stage with Billy, who can certainly hold his own now on a big stage. Right. I was like, wow, I remember... When he was just so excited that any one of those guys <laughs> was even hearing his music. It's just, yeah. it was so crazy to see like how far he had come in that time. It was really cool. Well, as far as, far as I'm concerned, he owed you a ticket to Shay then. You should cash that in. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah, and I love him with uh, with Dead and Company too. I really dig those. Uh, I, I've listened to a couple of those uh, shows. I like, I like, you know, it's a little smooth, but I like it. I think it fits really well. Yeah, he's a great player, and he can adapt. I mean, he can do the blues thing, he can do the dead thing, he can do. Yeah. He writes some fantastic pop tunes, so he's a really versatile player. And just it was it was a treat to see him play on this. Yeah, for sure. Last thing I want to say about this song is this is just I I, I guess this was the moment where it really really crystallized for me. But all throughout, uh, John Small does a great job capturing the energy of this show. Um, you know, from the beginning you felt like you were in a stadium you really 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 did um it's not it's not always what what you get you know um live from long island you know the performances are great you don't feel like you're sitting there and that's fine because you you get the performance you know as we said the yankee stadium is very stylized this one and and this is the time i, I think the first couple of songs you you get that feel because you know when you're in a stadium i'm actually surprised it was uh it was dark out because usually stadium shows start and you're still light it's the uh, sun's still up but you get that that low boiling energy kind of feel that you get in a stadium show and you feel it here. And this is the time I think he really he really managed to capture. I really felt like I was in the audience for this song. Yeah, that's a that's a great observation. You know, the shots are are pretty tight. It's like they he had a great way of getting close and tight without feeling obtrusive. So you yeah. feel like you're there, but you're not like in the way right. of the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just so well done. Yeah. Yeah, so next we've got Keeping the Faith. Um, good. I like the uh, I like the guitar riffs up front in this mix. Really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is deceptively a studio song sometimes. Um, you yeah. know, some songs sound great in the studio because they're layered and they're crafted and they, they don't always translate live. And this yeah. one, I think, sometimes is a little deceptively like that, but it sounds great here. A little different in a good way. Yeah, it definitely sounds different, but I, I do agree that, like, overall, I think this is a song, even harking back to when they played it on the Innocent Man tour and Bridge tour and all that, mm-hmm. I just feel overall that this just works better where it's at on an Innocent Man as a studio recording. Yeah, um, and just something about it uh, just works great there. But um, yeah, this is definitely a, a fun one. I do like the guitar up front, um, like it is on the album. Yeah, yeah, I like uh, I like that people were in groups of threes. Uh, Mark, Carl, and, and Crystal were up front. 
as a, as a group of three. Yeah. Um, forget who else was offhand, but uh, I, I made a note of that, that it was nice. Yeah, I don't know. It was just a nice visual. Made the song. You know, it's a song that uh, it works when it's fun. And, you know, seeing the people kind of grouping up and, and grooving along really, in, you know, definitely enhanced it. I think seeing this one made a big difference. Yeah, I agree. I think that made it not seem so flat. Yeah, right. Right. And I made a mistake before, I guess. I have in my notes, this is the first time we see the turntable move under the piano. I guess before, uh, I, I, I noticed that he had switched. But this is the first time you actually see him turning around is on this side. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, yep. Good call. Yeah. So after uh, that, we go into Captain Jack. So many guitar faces. They're all making the guitar player face They're in this all doing one. It. They're all doing the... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you ever see the memes where they take out, they take like famous guitarists and they take the, they take like the guitar out of it. Yeah, they put like a squid because they all look like they're grossed out by it. It's so ridiculous, but I laugh every time I see that. Yeah. It's so stupid, but it's so funny. Yeah. There's a couple. Tommy Burns makes one. Um, the bassist's first name again. Andy? Yeah. Andy Sashan, yeah. Andy Shishon makes one. Um, I think it's just so stupid. It was just like both of them, like one after the other. I know. It was great. I mean, it's good because it's got it's a, the it's stank a groove, face. It's got the lick song, you know. It's got the licks in them. I dug yep. the organ in it. Uh, organ was really prominent, and I liked yep. it. And that intro was another one that was like dead on from the record. Yeah, yeah, because he doesn't always you don't always hear it like that. Uh, songs nope. in the attic didn't have that. Um, so that was, yeah, that was real nice. Uh, I uh, I wrote down. I think this one, I think this one's just Jungle Land, and eh, maybe it's too abstract. But there was a moment in this where I was like, so my thinking on Jungle Land is this, and I go back to Hammersmith Odie in this, you know, Springsteen song. Um, the Hammersmith Odeon version of Jungle Land I like better than the uh, than the original. You know, it was that tour, and it's really good. But when the organ comes in on the record, that's a better moment, and. Uh, on this one, it was it just had that same, you know, thematically almost. It's got that same feel of desperation, um, kind of hidden behind some some really anthem arrangements. You know, big guitar parts, big sweeping sort of things. Sure. Um, so yeah, there were a couple times in this one where it needed just a, a slightly extra push that I, I I think you just can't get it outside of a studio or I shouldn't say that because Songs in the Attic had it, but. Maybe I'm going well, down he, a road that you makes know no he sense. used to during the during the later cor- the later choruses on the attic version where his voice would get this like gravelly thing going on yeah ah, Captain Jack like <laughs> where it was just had something in it that he hasn't done a whole lot in a very long time so that you know that part is missing when when musically things kind of go dynamically up right. Yeah, uh, great, great version. Just I think there was just one part where I wanted like just a little more of a lift, and I think it's just something about a place that big. It might, it might literally just be open air. You just can't push. You just yeah. can't push the air. It's not hitting the back of anything. It's not hitting the roof, and you don't get that feeling of pressure in it. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a yeah. fair point. Oh, you know, there's one spot too where during one of the verses. Or I think Billy plays a wrong chord. I like that chord. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he screws it up. He's like, oh, that was kind of cool. So he does it again. Yeah. And then he's like, yeah. oh, I like that chord. <laughs> <laughs> so they go to the village in your tie-dye jeans. And you stare at the junkies in the closet queens. I like that chord. It's like some pornographic man. 
Again, yeah, great version. Just I wanted one more push in it. It would have like, sure. You know, it's it, it's yeah. It's a weird. It's such a weird song too. And uh, it's nice to hear. It, it's nice to hear it at Shea Stadium. You know, it's nice to hear it get that due. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after that, we go into Lullaby with the uh, yeah. the string section back in. Thought this was an odd song for a stadium until uh, and like a boat out on the open sea. Um, yeah. Once I was, once they they hit that moment that made this this version for me that made me want to go back and listen to this one again um yeah the uh david rosenthal's arrangement evokes an ocean it just you know it was really impressionistic and and worked beautifully what a pleasant surprise when that happens yeah that was a really really nice moment um of a song that otherwise did seem like it was a definitely a bold choice for this stadium show though i do like how intentionally it does dovetail into river of dreams yeah um, yeah so they really do go well hand in hand together and so the, i did like that aspect of it but yeah that was an interesting and you know it, again it gave the other guys in the band a, a little bit of a break so they all got to step off stage for three and a half minutes right for sure and then yeah then we get into river of dreams and you know we've talked about before how how well billy sequences his shows and you just get that party you get that party thing going and this you know this definitely hits it off i love this version of it um Energy you know, is great. The background yeah. vocals are killing it. Mm-hmm. I love his manic faces in this one, man. He, he goes to town on that piano in the middle of this one. Uh, yeah. This is, uh, yeah, and the, again, this is a moment where, you know, you think it's it's Shea Stadium, it's the last show, they're recording it, you're going to play a little safe. He does not. He just starts pounding that, pounding out on that piano, whatever whatever he's feeling in that moment is just flying out of his hands. Yeah, um, yeah, I like and, that. That's yeah. like his unscripted moment in the song where he's oh, just yeah. gonna, that's gonna dictate where he's at that night. And it's its great every time. Yeah, I like the, the choruses I wrote down. Uh, oh, no, no, that's, that's a good song, my bad. <laughs> uh, still on River. <laughs> so, yeah, um, and then he puts, uh, shoot, I saw her standing there? No. Hard Day's Night. Later. Hard Day's Night, yeah, he puts Hard Day's Night in the middle. Um, that, that was a moment too, like, they they pulled it off. If you just hear it, you don't you don't think anything of it. When you're watching, you you see that there's a bit of eye contact, making sure that they hit it. You know. Yep. Which I enjoyed too. I don't know if it was a last minute choice. I don't know what the deal was, but it was a nice human moment. You know, mm-hmm. you see Tommy and, and Billy looking at each other, making sure they hit that just right. Yeah. What I noticed at the very top of Hard Day's Night was the first guitar player to play the chord. The you know, that classic opening chord was actually Dennis. Uh huh. And then. Tommy plays it, and then they oh. go into the song. My right. theory here is that Dennis isn't in Billy's monitor. <laughs> so Billy didn't hear the opening chord. So okay. Tommy plays it again. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. He, damn, man, he picked that up quick, because it sounded like they did it twice on purpose for some reason. Yeah, And you, and you feel something happening there. So yeah, that's All my right. theory, because I almost feel like Billy was waiting for the chord and didn't hear it the first time. Yeah, yeah, because there, there is something about the way he kind of leans when he does it. Really, okay, he's kind of leaning is. in, like, where is it? And then so right. Tommy Tommy does it the second time <laughs> around. Then they go into it. So I could be wrong, but a lot of people don't realize in-ear monitor mixes, it's not the full yeah. band. You know, so a lot of times it's like, okay, I'm going to have kick drum, a tiny bit of guitar, I'm going to have bass, 
my vocal, you know, if you were to just listen to a monitor mix, odds are it's not going to sound good to you. Oh, yeah, for sure. The, um, the listener, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just what the whoever's mix that is needs to do a good performance. So it's kind of a wonky mix. And so I'm guessing because Dennis was a lot of rhythm guitar, a lot of color stuff. I'm guessing he wasn't even in Billy's monitor. Yeah, I mean, Billy needs his piano and his vocals more than any, you know, more than anything or, you know, the person in that position would. I mean, when I get mine... First, and I love doing. I love like busting on guitar players. I'm like, take the take the guitar out of my mix. I don't out care. Yep, yep. <laughs> ooh, you that's super ooh, common. Solos. <laughs> yeah. Especially when, if you're using amps on stage. You know, if you have fractals, you know, there's no stage volume with guitars. But yeah, um, yeah. If you if you've got any cabinets on stage, you usually don't need any guitar in your wedge yeah. <laughs> or your monitors. Yeah, I just I just take bass and and vocals and 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 call it there. <laughs> Yeah, so. I typically was bass, vocal, and maybe a little bit of my kick drum just so I could feel it a little more. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I should do that more often. Once we get the hell out of here, I'm going to try that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So after Hard Day's Night, we're going into We Didn't Start the Fire. Yep, yep. And uh, he introduces Crystal here and uh, notes everything that she plays. <laughs> yeah. If you see it on the stage, she plays it. <laughs> and uh, um, this is the first time Billy's standing with a with yeah. guitar. We also see the piano going down into the stage, too. You, they leave yeah. that in. That's another one of those moments. Yeah, you um, see the trap door open with the piano yeah. going down. So, yeah, like we've said in most other concert films like that, you know, you know, there's there's a cutaway during that moment. And right. then when you cut back to the center stage, it's, it's just magically gone. So you can actually kind of see a little bit behind the curtain with that. Um, yeah. Crystal is her vocals at the ending and throughout you know just are always a highlight of this song yeah for sure um along with that my only note here is fucking tommy (laughs) (laughs) yeah he just did a great job on this one i like this the choruses are a little more streamlined yeah uh in a way a little heavier and I, i i like that a lot yeah the only thing i don't love about the choruses is instead of like billy singing the choruses he kind of does that ad lib thing yeah just for my taste, I don't love that. Um, but like near the end, he sings the chorus. But yeah, that's my only beef, I'd say, with the chorus. Um, right. Oh, yeah. I, I did notice another thing, too, that he throws in a line right before he starts the birth control Ho Chi Minh verse. Yeah. Where he just says, then they built Shay. <laughs> I love you caught I, I, that. So it's no. in between verses, and that just happened to be the year that Shea Stadium was built. So he just snuck it in before the first. Oh, that's funny. I, I got to go back and listen for that. Yeah. He, he, you know, it looks like he throws a cue for the stop on JFK Blown Away. Uh, yeah, he throws his hand back like he's telling the band to stop. Oh, interesting. And I'm like, what, did they screw it up in soundcheck? Like, <laughs> like how do they not? <laughs> you would think that that's never an issue, but that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it was just a moment he's like, we can't screw this up. We can't screw this up. You know, that's a good way to get the yips, though. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and the, <laughs> the other thing I wrote was, who's the suit? So if you watch. Now, what makes this funny to me is, you know, as, as many of us know, Billy doesn't sell the first rows or something like that yeah. to his concerts um, because he got tired of, like, you know, people with a lot of money that weren't huge fans, but they had the cash they would just buy up those tickets and then he would look down and they would be like kind of bored. So he started giving those away. So yeah. I just, I know it just tickled me that like they're in the crowd shot. There's like just one guy in a three piece suit. I'm like, you wore a three piece suit to a concert at Chase stadium. Sure. I'm like, who are you impressing? <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> 
overdressed a bit. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> On the floor and everything, you know. Though it is funny, I did see, see some people at the Metallica S&M show. Yeah. Like all decked out in like <laughs> the symphony attire, which I thought was oh, hilarious. Yeah. I mean, at least at least you can that, figure that's that a little ironic. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Uh, so then we get up to uh, You May Be Right. Uh, yep. I notice, right, well, there's technically three, but one of them was pretty obvious. But um, So there, there's two like little, one of those little detail moments is we see the piano coming back up and we see the guitar, we, we see the piano tech like standing near it and just making sure yep. everything goes according to plan. We also see Billy climb up on the piano and not just on top of it. So that that whole sequence yeah. there. Um, this all right. This one's really nitpicky, but like I said, he is my hero for this show. As you see, Tommy hitting his stomp pedals before a solo. Yeah, just a tiny little thing, you know. But you usually just don't see it, you know. Right. I mean, I didn't know effects pedals were a thing until I knew a guitar. Granted, it was in like seventh grade, but yeah. you just you just didn't see that. You know what I mean? Like if you watched a video or something, you never saw them like actually hit the stomp pedal and do something. Changing their tones and yeah, the pedals. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, Billy flips off the camera at the end. <laughs> at the end, yeah, I noticed that too. I wrote that down. I say here that, yeah, nice, solid performance overall for sure. And yeah. Billy is like just super loose and having fun with it. This was fun to see. Yeah. Um, yeah, then we are like deep in party mode now. You know, we're like, it, you know, it's like a three and a half song arc if you count Hard Day's Night. It's yeah. like now you got a couple cocktails in, you're loosening <laughs> up, you know? Yeah, everybody's yeah. dancing. Yeah. After this, we go into scenes, scenes from an Italian mm-hmm. restaurant. Yeah, there's a there's a slight wardrobe change here. Crystal's now wearing a Billy Joel Mets jersey. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It says Joel 08, I think, on the back. Yeah, yeah. And scenes, I just love this version of scenes from an Italian restaurant. Yeah. Just, it's such a good song overall. I don't know. I just I just like it. Mark's solo, I thought, was great. I dug mm-hmm. the uh, the horns and all that. That, that you know, that stood out to me. What, what are your thoughts? Um... It's not my favorite version of it. I think um, the problem is that it's such an amazing song. <laughs> you know what I mean? That like, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one to knock out of the ballpark every single time. I think in some way, you know, nothing wrong with it. Great version. If I was there, I would have I would have you know enjoyed the hell out of it. But uh, but you know, as like an outside spectator, it's it's okay. Yeah. yeah, like if you're stacking up all the versions I can find, this isn't the one. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, fair point. I, I, I think part of it is, you know, the the appeal, and uh, maybe we'll make this my third Springsteen reference for the night. We'll make, you know, the appeal of songs like "Scenes from an Italian Restaurant" uh, and "Jungle Land" and uh, even "Born to Run" um, is that, you know, they're very sophisticated, but they're still played completely with rock instruments. You know what I mean? It's still a rock and roll band. Yeah, yeah. There's some strings on the studio version of "Scenes from an Italian Restaurant" at the end, and "Born yeah. to Run" is obviously layered and layered and layered and layered. But it's still a rock band, and to me, it loses a little when you actually add the strings in the whole time, or you add in a full uh, horn section. Um, it takes away what makes, to me, what makes these songs really, really exciting, really fascinating. 
is that it's a rock band playing it. And and these weren't guys that went to music school, man. This is this is woodshop. You know, this is uh, I learned how to make an ashtray. <laughs> you know, um, right? It, uh, yeah, I got to ground these metaphors soon. But uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but I, I think I said that about Metallica once. Is that's what I liked about them. It's like it's so bolt on. It's it, that's the charm to it. Is like you know they they just figured out how to work. You know how to work the machine themselves. You know. Um, yeah. So my, I mean, my favorite. Well, I don't like my favorite, but it's definitely up there. If you look up um, Rare World Premiere live on WIOQ in 1977, I think it was like the first time they played it. Um, the excitement on that one's amazing, and it's live, so there's no overdubs on it. You know. Yeah. And I think that really does it for me. So the only thing that doesn't do it is just it. It obviously calls. It's such a theatric song that it calls for all that extra instrumentation. But I think the extra instrumentation actually takes away its rock and roll charm. Yeah, I can see that. And, you know, back in the 70s, the guys then had cracked the code on it so early yeah. that they they found a way to make it so powerful just with the five or six of them on stage or whatever. Right. Um, And that's all it needed. And it was so powerful. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then so, you know, I guess we're technically still in party mode. Um, you know, scenes brings yep. it down a little, you know, it just gives you a breather for a couple parts of the songs there. Only the Good Die Young is next. Um Great version. I got no notes on it. <laughs> it's, it's only the good yeah. dialogue. It was fine. <laughs> I thought it was solid. I, I felt it could use a little more punch, a little, maybe a little more energy. Maybe that uh, just has to do with the tempo. Um, you yeah. know, this band plays it a little slower than I typically prefer it. Uh-huh. Um, maybe if they ticked up the BPM a little bit, it might have given it a little bit more movement. But I mean, otherwise, it was pretty solid, I thought. And nothing, right. nothing stood out one way or the other. Yeah, great. It's great in sequence. I wouldn't like pull this one out and listen to it. Right. In the sequence of it, it's perfect. It works in context. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then next is the big, big, big reveal of Paul McCartney. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sir Paul McCartney. So a little bit prior is must have been when they came over to tell Billy that he's in air, U.S. airspace or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I think they didn't even know for sure because after only the good die young, you can tell they're all kind of like rushing around. It's yeah. like, oh, we got, we're doing this now. You see Billy rush over to Tommy and David, and I'm thinking it's him telling them that like, hey, Paul's here. We're doing. Right. I saw her standing there now. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. here. So get ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Agreed. Yeah. You definitely see him like shouting out directions and stuff um, which isn't typically common because the show is usually such a well-oiled machine at this stage of yeah. his career he's usually not like powwowing with the band mid-show and that i'm i'm pretty confident that 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 was the case here paul was oh, there yeah. paul was ready we're calling an audible let's go right had to be yeah because i think they were, we were almost like walking off after only the good die young and he was like kind of hurting them you know i mean the, you know the, the what's the mechanics of the, the the stage is that big everybody's screaming you know you're playing in a bar you could turn around and, and talk to somebody like what are you gonna do you're gonna cup your mic and, and, and start like bellowing <laughs> across the right. stage and i think you gotta yeah. get heard you know um all right another grateful dead reference you know the grateful dead had in-ears that they used to talk to each other during the i think i'm sure they still do it now for dead and company but I think there's actually tapes out there where you can hear their entire conversation. They're like, all right, all right, we're going to go to this part now. Okay, we're going to do this, you know. Uh, towards the end, it was Jerry. Jerry to C-sharp. Jerry. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. 
Oh, that's but, hilarious. Um, yeah. But, you know, so they clearly, you know, I mean, Billy Joel doesn't need those because it, it, he doesn't sprawl, any, you know, anywhere right. as much as the Great from Dead. Right. So, yes, yeah, so <laughs> something like that's happened. Like, the tech has to come out and tell him something. He's got to run over to Tommy and say something. He doesn't have, you know. So, that, another again, that was a great moment. And that was one that uh, you, you could, there would be no reason not to put that in. Because if you know the backstory of, like, waiting to see if Paul's going to show, you know, I, I yeah, was waiting for that to happen. Like, the first time I watched this, I was like, because I, I think I had known the story or whatever. Um, yeah. That I was like, okay, ooh, is he there? What's, what's happening? Wait, it's River of Dreams. He comes out here. I thought, I thought, you know, I th- you know, I thought he would be here later. Um, right. Yeah. So you see that going by. Yeah, man. That song goes by in a flash too. You're almost like, did you just like shuffle Paul McCartney back off the stage? Like, what the hell was that? <laughs> Those early Beatles tunes are so short. You know. Yeah. You got songs that are like minute and a half, minute fifty seconds, and they go by in such a blink. And yeah, this first go around, it was like he was up and he was gone. It was like so fast. Right. Yeah, and so Paul, which I love, you know, being a bass player, he's got the classic Hoffner bass that he's mm-hmm. been playing for years. And so since Paul is playing bass, Andy is not playing bass on this song. He's only singing mm-hmm. background vocals. So it's kind of strange to see him without a bass on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He picks it up, right? Is it at the end of this one is when he like picks it up by the by the by the neck, like near the Yeah, just holds, just holds it up. Holds it yeah. Up. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Paul's one that uh, his voice is, has maintained. I, I, from what I've heard, it's it's you know it's got to do with his his technique that you know he's just maintained his voice. He never like tore up his vocal cords or anything. Even for all the, the screaming that he does, he kept mm-hmm. it. He kept himself in good shape. And yeah, he sounded great here. You got to figure like only Paul McCartney, who's seen it all, can like be rushed from JFK to 55,000 <laughs> screaming fans and just show the most minutest hint of, okay, what the hell's going on right now? Because he just comes on and he's like, oh, hello. <laughs> and then just, I know. It, you know? <laughs> yeah, the way his entrance there was just so funny. <laughs> and yeah, just to go from like off the plane into the limo, rushed over and right. boom, 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 so quick. But man, the crowd was so electric when he walked out on stage. Yeah, Ugh. yeah. I like got goosebumps watching that. Yeah, yeah. You see him like he's not nervous, but he definitely like scans for a second. And he's like saying, oh, hello. He's just like taking stock of everything and, you know, figuring out how he's going to do it or something. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no sound check. No nothing. Oh, nothing. (laughs) I'm going to say no (laughs) in-ears. Oh, no, no. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure he's got, you know, his bass is going through Andy's rig. That'd be my guess. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you know, I guess the one thing we don't necessarily see, or maybe I'll go back and check, is whatever, whatever, um, whatever they're doing at that moment to get that bass plugged in, because you certainly right. don't hear any pops, you know, that you might hear from a from a plug going in and out, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, he didn't leave the the moment hanging, you know. He kept, you know, because it's coming off only the good die young, and he could have, you know, in the back of his head, being like, "Hey, man, they're gonna wait ninety seconds for Paul to get out here." But he didn't. He just he rushed it and kept yeah. that show going the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah. Especially if he's just going to do I Saw Her Stand. Everyone's going to go by in two minutes and five seconds, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And then just as quick as he's up there, he's gone. Like you said, it's such a short performance. Yeah. And he, you know, he's already off stage. And mm-hmm. then they go into Piano Man, which, you know, Piano Man's what it is. But, right. man, it's hard to pass up <laughs> what just happened. <laughs> yeah, you feel follow it. up, I should say. Yeah, it's a heavy version. It's a rocking version of this, man. They really, they tick, they definitely ticked this one up. Not yep. tempo wise, it had a, lot, a little more energy. 
Not that, yeah. and you know, it's just the one that works well, kind of relaxed. The studio version is, is a little thin production-wise, uh, which mm-hmm. works for it. Um, sure. So they give it a lot more body, especially in this version. And the waitresses practicing politics as the businessmen slowly get stoned. Yes, they're sharing a drink they call loneliness. Let's burn a drink in a And that leads us into the big finish, which is Let It Be. And, you know, Paul uh, obviously is going to come back. Well, I guess, uh, no, damn right Paul's going to come back out. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, fly in Paul McCartney and give him two minutes. <laughs> hey, New York. It's so cool to be back here on the last night. Came here a long time ago. and We had a blast that night. And we're having another one tonight. And don't quote me on this. Maybe I'll learn more once we rewatch the uh, documentary for another episode. But uh-huh. I think the whole Let It Be thing was not totally planned either. I think maybe initially it was just going to be the one song. But Billy's like, mm-hmm. you got to close it out. Yeah, and you know, because you know what's funny about it is, uh, and this is my note on this one, <laughs> Billy doesn't quite know what to do with himself for, for a little bit. He's just, you know, like doesn't have the guitar prop on, you know, he's not at a piano. So he's like, what Mm -hmm. do I do? Yeah. 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 Definitely wasn't blocked out. Like Tony Bennett was completely that that was blocked out. He knew how many steps to take. He knew where he was going, all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, in this one, you see (laughs) Billy just kind of looks around for a minute. He's like, "Ah, I'll sit on the piano, you know. And if you watch a couple of times, he starts bringing the mic up to his to his mouth and he stops. You know, like he's gonna say, really... but he decides just to let it let it happen. Yeah, without it. Exactly. Yeah, because it's not like they split the verses or anything. He just uh, harmonized a little. Yeah, I noticed that too. Because mm-hmm. clearly this wasn't rehearsed, so he was just kind of feeling yeah. the moment and when he was gonna kind of, like you said, provide a little bit of harmony. And when he, you know, he would decide sometimes at that moment just to lay off and let it, you know, let everything else happen. Um, you know, I would, uh, I would really, really wonder if if the Paul McCartney thing isn't what. Um, what what inspired John Small to leave in all those things like on the back end you know what I mean like you know you almost wonder if it's because you couldn't pass up showing all those uncertain moments of Paul coming out maybe he decided you know what let's let's just show a little more of that let's show him what it looks like to see to to put on a concert a little and lead up to those moments yeah I I I think that's a good theory I'm not surprised I wouldn't be surprised if that was an intentional thing like because of that you're right yeah we we, we got to make a list sometime of like all this stuff we wonder about and like one day we're gonna we're gonna get that shot you know we're gonna start asking right and we're whoever we ask you be like do Your you really think answered yeah and they're gonna be like do you really think i remember that like, <laughs> yeah billy would probably be like i can't believe there's people who think about this shit <laughs> <laughs> we're like uh, we're like the comic book guy on the simpsons now. right Exactly. You see the one with the with Xena Warrior Princess, and they're like in episode thirteen B. You play the, you do this, you do that, and <laughs> right. she's like a, a wizard did it. <laughs> it's it's interesting to think about, just you know why they you know when you when you watch a video like this, and 
why they make the, the decisions they do. What you know, what does that bring to the table? What was you know, what was John Small thinking when he decided when he made those choices about about those cuts? You know, and yeah, um, and it's kind of like that. You know, with an album too, it's like yeah. you know, the final product is like such a moment in time that's recorded and preserved, mm-hmm. but prior to it being done, it can go a million ways, and yeah. so so many decisions go into the final product that yeah. can really dictate how something's going to end up. And, you know, when you're capturing a moment like this, you know, you, you're making a lot of decisions about how you're going to capture it for posterity. And, and I really appreciate the fact that this one captures a little bit of the grit and a little bit of the minutia that makes it more than just watching the performance. It makes it makes you know that you're watching an event, an event that could have gone wrong in a couple places, you know? The... Uh, that's the piano true. could have gotten stuck. Tony Bennett could have tripped. Paul McCartney maybe wouldn't have made it. Who knows, you know? There were so and many we, variables, yeah. Yeah, and we saw, and you don't realize it, but he leaves in all those moments of tension where something could go wrong because they didn't keep it all behind the curtain. I think that's a really, yeah. I really appreciate that that approach to this, uh, to this video. And honestly, too, tension is part of what makes it exciting. It's like nerves, you know, it's like, if you're too lackadaisical about it, you're, you might not have that energy. But if you've got just that right amount of tension and uncertainty, it keeps you on your toes and gives a little more life to the performance. Yeah, it comes from when you're pushing at, at when you're pushing towards your limit. You know, there's an old saying about the you know the the tip we got was uh don't play at your peak on stage, play one notch below because whatever you're doing at like the peak of your abilities um, has the potential to go wrong. But if you go if you if you if you always play something that's just a little easier than the hardest thing you can do, you probably won't make a mistake. And you know, people break that rule sometimes, and when they break it in the right way, it's amazing. And that's where you get that tension because they're they're throwing caution to the wind for you, you know, in that moment, or you're at least there when they're doing it. And that's what makes those things interesting. So, you know, in this video or others, man, live performances when we get them again, watch for those moments, man, because that that's like the pure true musicianship coming out. Absolutely. Did the version you saw have the three bonus songs? I don't think so. Okay. Well, maybe I'll touch on these just real quick. There were yeah. the um the DVD and Blu-ray version that came out had three additional songs. Mm-hmm. We had Walk This Way with Steven Tyler. I'm going to have another old friend come up and do this next song. You probably know this one. Please say hello to Steven Tyler from Aerosmith. No, did not see that one. That was a, a fun one, you know, Steven Tyler being Steven Tyler. He brought his mic stand and everything with the scarves and the whole nine. Um, so he had, you know, he was in his comfort zone with his setup. And Tommy sounded really good on that. Chuck, I think, was missing a kick drum note in that groove <laughs> that caught my eye. But uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Steven was having a good time. The band was loving it. Yeah. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, the second one was My Generation with Roger Daltrey. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's notated in a lot of places. I figured it was in the documentary somewhere. Yeah, this is one of the bonus ones on this. Uh, the band sounded really good. It's a good song for the band, you know, that mm-hmm. just kind of 60s classic rock. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Roger's vocals just not really happening. Um, not quite there. <laughs> and it's, you know... Those songs were, I'm sure, hard to sing in 1970. So yeah. I, I kind of give, give him a pass on that. But yeah, I, I feel like he wasn't quite hitting those notes. But uh, it was fun mm-hmm. to see him up there. Um, yeah. And I, I noticed the bottom part of his mic 
and around the first part of the cable was all wrapped in tape because mm-hmm. you know how he swings the microphone <laughs> around all the time. Yeah. It's just to make sure the XLR doesn't pop out from the mic. Right. And so, you know, I noticed that that was all taped up like it usually is for him. And that was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, and then the the last one, which was my favorite of the three, uh, was Pink Houses with John Mellencamp. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I'm seeing that in the set list and that didn't make it in. I think Mellencamp brought his guitar player with him as well because there's another guitar player on stage mm-hmm. for this. I don't know who it was, um, but I, because of the nuances of what he was playing, I'm pretty sure it was Mellencamp's guitar player. He knew the song way too well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and John sounded really, really good on this. He just was oh, cool. hitting all those right notes, had the, just the right amount of rasp in his voice. And the mm. background vocals were great. And, uh, you know, Crystal, one of her first big gigs was with John Mellencamp. Yeah, yeah. And Billy mentions that, uh, that you know, John found her first. <laughs> and, and so that was kind of a, a nice little moment. Uh, yeah. And... Crystal sounded great on the vocals, and you could tell she was just so thrilled to be playing with him again. You could just see her like kind of throwing some like smiles his way and stuff like that. And I think he nods to her a few times as well, so that was kind of neat to see. And then as as Mellencamp walks off stage, Chainsaw is on stage doing a guitar switch uh, for <laughs> Tommy and whatnot. And yeah. I, I you see Mellencamp just kind of pat him on the shoulder as he walks off stage, and that was <laughs> that was a nice little acknowledgement to the crew, you know? Yeah. That's cool. But yeah, those were a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, the Mellencamp one was certainly my favorite of the three. And, there, you know, there were some interesting songs that got totally left off, too, that I would love to see. Uh, yeah. You had mentioned Souvenir, which ended night one. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what nights these were on, but I also noticed um, Root Beer Rag. Yeah. Don't Ask Me Why, Down Easter Alexa, and This mm-hmm. Night, which I thought was really cool. Oh, wow. I, I want to find a copy of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a few other cover. I mean, she they did. She loves you. Uh, mm-hmm. They did stand by me. They did boys of summer with Don Henley, which oh yeah, you know, yeah, which doesn't really get mentioned almost at all. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, it's always such a damn shame, man. Like, just give us the whole concert for Christ's sake. Like, what the hell? I've always wondered <laughs> what's the why that happens so often. It's so rare that you get a true full concert. Yeah. Um. I mean, all right. I'll give it to you, dude. If you're gonna make you know, I guess it's like if you're going to put it out, you know, you're not there. So maybe they're going to make some adjustments so the listener sure. at home gets a great experience because it's not sure. the same experience. But at some point, man, you just want the whole thing. Like, can't you just... I, so, I, you know, Live at Leeds is a great example by The Who. Like, when that that was like a, a, a milestone live album. It had like six tracks on it. Granted, a couple of them were really long. So right. then they, that was the original. And then when I got it, there was the expanded version and it was like 78 minutes long. They pushed the edge of the CD and in the liner notes, because they only had sparks from Tommy in the liner notes. They note that they also did the whole thing and they say, perhaps in a re in another reissue down the line, you'll get that. I'm like, no, you're just messing with me, man. And sure enough, that one came out and it had like, you know, it was just the whole thing. Wow. And I think, but here's the bitch of that one. If I remember (laughs) correctly, uh, they put Tommy completely on another disc, which threw it out of sequence. Like, that's not how they did it. They did Tommy that's in the middle. Like, God, just yeah. give us the damn Zappa. Um, you can't do that on stage anymore. Volume two is mm-hmm. stellar. And it's noted as one of the, uh, well, it's the only one out of that series that's just one concert. All yeah. the other ones are famously, he would like literally overdub performances from different years and give you like this new version of a song. Um, and even that one, there were edits in it. It's like, just 
give us the album just give us the concert you know yeah oh man <laughs> but um you know all that being said john small did a great job putting capturing the moment for us for sure yeah he really <laughs> did this is a special <laughs> show and disclaimer i haven't really watched this too much over the years um yeah. Yeah, I you know when it came out, I bought it, and mm-hmm. I'm staring at my copy that I bought at Best Buy or something mm-hmm. as we speak. I thought it was good, um, but I'd never listened or watched it that closely until this week, and it really gave me a new appreciation for what this was about and the moment and the experience of it, and just yeah. how well done it was. Yeah, it's worth a rewatch. Um, with all this in mind, reading up a little bit, bit about the history of it and understanding what was happening and knowing that, that you're, this one's more of a specific moment for a specific reason than the other ones, you know. And it's worth noting as well that this actually did not come out for a few years. While it was recorded July 16th and 18th in 2008, this was not released until March 8th, 2011. So you had yeah. uh, nearly three years go by before this got released. Right. Um... When did 12 Gardens Live come out? I know it was recorded in 2006. Um, yeah. And it was released, oh, yeah, it was released. June 13th. So they, they yeah. put that out pretty quick. Yeah, that one came out quick. I was thinking maybe, I couldn't remember how, how early 12 Gardens Live came out. Maybe they were just trying to space them out. But, you know, well, you know, yeah, they could have been because that would have been like two years. Just about yeah. two years later, they would have come out with another live album. Maybe they were just holding on to it for that reason. Yeah, maybe. Because in 2010, they put out Billy Joel, The Hits, which was uh, one of those mm. single disc compilations. Right. Um, and then later that year, they put out that She's Got Away love songs. Yeah. And then also in 2011 is when that box set, the complete albums collection came out. So there was a lot mm-hmm. going on then. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they were probably spacing it out. When yeah. did the uh, when did the when did the uh, last play at Shea doc come out? Let's see. Let me check. The last play at Shea. That was 2010. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, uh, debuted Tribeca Film Festival April 26th of 2010. Oh, yeah, CD yep, you're DVD. right. Yeah and, then, yeah, and then it was, you know, 11 months later almost, March 8th, 2011, the uh, the CD and the DVD came out. So I guess it, they, maybe they put it out as a companion, as an afterthought to the documentary. I bet you that's why. Put yeah, that on I think because the documentary got so well received, so maybe that kind of prompted them to do this. Because yeah. I'm looking here, uh, the DVD of The Last Play at Shea was February 8th, and a month later was the live album. Right. So, yeah. that, so that now makes a little more sense, because you had the, the documentary doing the indie film circuit, Tribeca mm-hmm. and whatnot, and then it got really, you know, I think it had really, really good reviews, and you know was received very well. So that prompted a DVD release of that, and then probably mm-hmm. they decided to release the concert as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll accept that. <laughs> Will you accept my uh, my my theory? <laughs> Whew. All right, I think we've been talking almost as long as the concert. <laughs> yeah, we have. No more special guests tonight, though. This is it, folks. Yeah, right. You're stuck hold with on, just the on. two of us tonight. <laughs> Paul, Paul McCartney just popped my curb in the limo, and he's running in now. <laughs> uh. That's a Northeast Philly thing. You can't find a spot. You you just pull right up on the sidewalk. And like people from other places, like, what what are you people doing? Like, nah, it's just how it goes here. <laughs> it's how you do it here. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. Yeah. So this one was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed watching this again and going through it and, uh, you know, listening and watching with a different frame of mind. And uh, I'm really glad they documented it because it was a, a really special time and a, a really special moment. 
yeah, I hope uh, I hope people uh, you know kind of hear this and and are inspired. You know, once again to take another look at this and and through a different lens and and you know find a little uh, something different, a little more to to enjoy about it. Yeah, and I'm curious if any of you out there were at any of these shows. If you were at either night one or two, or maybe even both, um, we'd love to hear your experiences. Even down to like, you know, was it like super hot and just you know hot <laughs> summer night? You know, what yeah. was the vibe and experience like, and just how was it seeing all these guests roll out? I, I really want to know. You know, we'd love to hear. You know, what your experience of all of this was. Um, shoot us an email, uh, glasshousespodcast yeah, sure. at gmail dot com. You can reach out to us and let us know about this show for you. The social medias, we're on all the socials there. Mm-hmm. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, um, you know, our website, glasshousespod.com. It's all the same spots you can find us. And yeah. we'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, if you were there, what your experience was with it. And if your only experience with it is watching it like we have, you know, listening into it, you know, what, what are some of your favorite moments? What are some of the guests that you were excited about on this? All right. And with that, we'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. See you, folks. Thank you. Tonight's show. Thank you. Drive safe. Not like me. Don't take any shit from anybody. <laughs>